0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Google heard you like hashes, so they broke SHA-1. We've got the details. Plus, the latest on Cloudflare's data disaster. Dan shows us his rack. We've got your feedback, a huge roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 308 and was live streamed on February 28, 2017. The show is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Joining me this week and every week is our host. He's the admin, the organizer, and the explainer. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Hey, Wes. How Hello, are you doing channel? this week? I'm um, good. Got any... Uh, Lots of new stuff on the rack. Oh, really?
0: Anything oh, yes. you want to share with us right now? I am I know uh, I'm always interested.
1: A new PDU up at the top, which means I had to move two other ones further down. Um, so it's been a week full I'm of rack maintenance. Over there. Well, it's about three, four hours on Saturday or Sunday.
0: That seems like a nice way on the weekend, you know, put in some time make things better around the house you feel cleaner organized and we get to we get to benefit here on the show
1: yes it, it's been stuff that's been waiting for i'm not exaggerating months i know it how that goes to be done for months
0: you have those projects that just kind of like sit on the back burner they're not important enough mm-hmm. yeah all right everything has power now but i really want those couple spare outlets or whatever the case may be for you mm-hmm. yep awesome yep. All right, well, we've got a pretty awesome show today, packed with news. It's been a very interesting tech news week, let alone security news. So uh, unless you have anything, let's get rolling.
1: Well, last week we thought we had the lead story, and then it turns out that we didn't have the lead story. But we're continuing along as it is. Yes, exactly. So, basically, the biggest news of the week, I think, it's arguable. Some people will dispute this. Yes, there's a couple items it was, here. I think it was the SHA-1 collision. And everyone seems to be saying, oh, Google broke SHA-1. Why'd they break SHA-1? Um, <laughs> oh, Google, what some, are you doing? Yeah, you're making work for everyone. No, what they're doing is they're proving that it can be broken and therefore forcing people's hands to stop using it. Right. Uh, and one of the key things to keep in mind is that it Google provided the compute power but Mark Stevens provided the brain power on the background and, and the, the theoretical paper some years ago. So, in, in, into this story. Let's jump right in. You'll, you'll find that hashes play a role in, in browser security, managing code repositories, or just detecting duplicate files and storage. Hash functions compress large amounts of data into a small message digest. So, what kind of stuff gets hashed in. First first of all, let's have a look at what a cryptographic hash is because not everyone is is aware of what it is and what it's for and you know, why do I care about a cryptographic hash?
0: Right, we use them well, like I mean, you might run them on the command line, you use them every day, they're used all over the place, but that doesn't mean that we have a very good clear explanation of exactly what what's the difference between a regular hash function, right?
1: Most people day to day don't know they're using hashes. But most people day-to-day who are on the internet or even on their phones will at some time encounter some software that's using a hash of some kind. So the most common thing that I can think of for using a hash is to uh, figure out if, if a file has been modified. Um, say I'll, I've got a big tarball of files, a zip, a, zip file, a zip file of files that I want to send away to somewhere. I'll copy it over. And then once I get it there, I'll run mv5 on it to see whether or not the file changed. Now, mv5 has been around for a long time, and it has been it's not very well secure at the moment, but it's still a perfectly reasonable way to say, yes, the file that I got there is the same as the file that I sent. So it can be used for very simple things like that, to verify that a file or a message hasn't been changed. Um, It can also be used for password verification. Um, One of the things that a system should not do is send you your password, ever. Um, What they should be storing is a hash of your password. And then when you enter your password, they run your password through that hash and compare the hash of what you just entered with the hash of what is stored in their database. They do that for the main reason, so that if someone breaks into their database and gets access to their password list, they don't know what your original right. password is.
0: Right, they have to at least, so, you know, they have to do work or rainbow table or whatever to get that. They don't just get a free database of passwords.
1: Right, and if you do it very, very well, rainbow tables aren't feasible. Exactly. Well, they, they could be.
0: Right, it's always they an issue of, of computing power and what you have available. It's an arms race, basically. And that's why... As we're going to talk about today, that's why it's important to stay current with the latest technology in this area.
1: And that's why SHA-1 is now deprecated, because when it was built, it wasn't feasible to break it. But we'll get into into how it was broken. Another thing you can do with a hash is prove that you've done something. For example, I can say, I have this mathematical proof. It proves this, and someone can dispute you and say, oh, I don't believe you. And so what you do is you say, okay, well, here's the MD5 of my document that I've prepared. And when I'm ready, I'll release the work, for example. So you you can just prove that you discovered this formula on this date by making that hash publicly available. And then at some date in the future, release the actual work, for example.
0: Right, so in that way, it's a good way to stand. It's like a proxy for identity without you having to actually reveal the entire contents of something.
1: Right, so you prove that you have something without producing what you have. There you You go. You can produce the what you have later. I like that. So, and the other thing that it is used for is identifying files. Um, Say you have a whole bunch of files and you've got lists of MD5s of them, or SHA-1s, and you store all the the hashes in a table so that when you have an incoming file, say for a backup system, you do an MD5 of the file that you're about to back up and you say, "Uh, I've already got that one, don't bother backing it up. Nice, yeah, that makes sense. Simple simple way. So now, let's talk briefly about SHA-1. So SHA-1 has been around for a little while. It's 14 years old now. 1424, uh, 24 years old. It was developed as part of the U.S. government's Capstone project. Now, some people may automatically assume government. No, we shouldn't be using that. So, the original specification of the algorithm was published in '93 under the title Secure Hash Standard, and it was came out by the Government Standards Agency NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So. Why do we worry about SHA 1? Well, it forms part of widely used security applications and protocols such as TLS, SSL, PGP, uh, SSH, SMIME, and IPSec, all of which are rather important. Yeah, right. We, those are used in production, right? Mm-hmm. And complicating this, SHA 1 and SHA 2 Are the secure hash algorithms required by law for use in certain US government applications? Really? Including use within other cryptographic algorithms and protocols for the protection of sensitive, unclassified information. So, will they have to pass a law in order to make the government stuff a little more secure? I'm interested.
0: It's kind of interesting how it can go there. You know, it starts out its lifecycle as a, hey, this is a mandate to make sure that you're doing security properly, and now it's a mandate to do security improperly.
1: Yikes. So, now, SHA-1 is also used by some uh, revision control systems, such as Git and Mm Mercurial. But don't panic, because they use SHA not for security, but for ensuring that the data has not changed due to accidental corruption. Oh, so, it's a bit like, so it's a bit like checksums right. on, um, on ZFS. So it's not gonna stop people from getting into the system, but it will detect that they have gotten into the system and that's the key part of it. So Git does not require, uh, this is how it works. Git does not require the second pre-image resistance of SHA-1 as a security feature. You should really read up on that. We're not going to go into it, since it will always requ- always prefer to keep the earliest version of an object in case of collision, thus preventing an attacker from surreptitiously, sorry, surreptitiously overwriting files. So they can try, but it's going to be detected and there are actually patch we'll, we'll get to that later. There are patches out, so don't worry about your Git repo. It's not as dangerous as some people have been making it mm-hmm. out to be. In my opinion, I think I think you're fine. Now, I want to go back to the blog. Okay. The blog post. Now, what they have done as what what they've done essentially is they've proven that it can be done. Previously, this was just theoretical. You had to have a lot of computing power and a lot of time in order to do this.
0: Right. There's a difference between like, hey, this might happen in the future when someone has a whole bunch of computers to do this versus like, hey, we've done it and you need to be aware that people can, if we can do it, other people can do it and probably are
1: doing it. Yep. Now, who do you know of that has a lot of computers?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Maybe Google? Google.
1: Yes. So, I think that's why they got involved. Um, One other thing that I forgot to mention, uh, these guys are all part of, what was it? Uh, Ground, not Ground Zero. Oh, Project Zero?
0: Yes, Project Zero.
1: Project Zero. Do we cover that yet? No, we didn't. Project Zero. I want to tell people about that because this this is just a great project that I wasn't aware of until this one. So, Basically, Project Zero is a Google project. After finding a number of flaws in software by many end users while researching other problems, such as a critical heart bleed vulnerability, Google decided to form a full-time team dedicated to finding such vulnerabilities not only in Google software, but any software used by its users. So that's basically all software. The new project was announced 15 July 2014 on Google's security blog, While the idea for Project Zero can be traced back to 2010, its establishment fits into the larger trend of Google's counter-surveillance initiatives in the wake of the 2013 global surveillance disclosures by Edward Snowden. Now, I have no doubt that this happened. I have no doubt that this is why they did it. Do you you remember when Google was doing a big push to get everything TLS? Yes. Everything, even things... in, in. within their own data center and going between their data centers and people were saying oh yeah that sounds like a good idea this was all before the snowden stuff came out and i remember that and thinking back and thinking they knew that they, they yeah. had seen something or had been pressured or had
0: seen the yeah they'd seen the the signs coming that they needed to yeah yeah it's like, you know you can't give away the information you don't have and people can't yeah. siphon things on they're not unencrypted on the wire
1: if they can't see it, they can't grab it. Exactly. Now, the reason I mentioned Project Zero is um, uh, I got confused. That's the other article. Okay, anyway, Project Zero, G- Google is involved with this. We'll, we'll get on to this next. Now, on to uh, for the tech community, our, our findings emphasize the necessity of sunsetting SHA-1 usage. Google has advocated the deprecation of SHA one for many years, particularly when it comes to signing TLS certificates. Remember, I got caught by that. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah. I had an old private CA that I had sitting here, and it wouldn't work. I couldn't get my.
0: Oh right, because you had you had gotten it to um, you had got all the certificates issued, but they weren't mm-hmm. they were no longer being trusted, right?
1: they were old because they're only sha1 and my macbook would not would not attach would not attach to my uh, imap server oh, interesting. it wouldn't allow it wouldn't allow me to, sen- to send out going emails because the server it was connecting to postfix was using uh, uh, a sha1 certificate Thank How you, James. Yeah, right. Thank, I mean, you. Thank you, Apple.
0: It's those exact kind of things where it's like you have the pressure on like the sysadmin side. We're like, ah, my thing is broken now. You've like hurt my service. But
1: you're making me do work. Yes,
0: exactly. You're making me do work, but uh, hey, it's worthwhile.
1: Now so back to this. Uh, should no yeah, we, we hope our practical attack on SHA one will cement the that the protocol should no longer be considered secure. We hope that it will finally convince the industry that it is urgent to move for safer alternatives shut to SHA-256. Now, I'll be, I've already seen a few things of what Git has said. I haven't looked to see if SVN has said anything subversion, but we'll see. So, some places have been rec- reluctant to upgrade. That's what they're saying. And I uh, already said I got caught up in that, but that was my own fault. I just had this uh, CA that had been sitting around for about 10 years. Right. So. The interesting part is to find this. It was it was four years ago when Mark Stevens published a paper that outlined a theoretical approach to this thing. So, they decided that they were get together and collaborate. Now, it's amazing of what they needed here. They needed nine quintillion shock computations. Wow! So that's basically sixty five hundred years of GPU computation to complete the, fir- the first phase, the first phase. So imagine you have 6,500 computers, mm-hmm. GPUs sitting around. It's going to take them a year to do all this work. A year. That's crazy. So it th- th- this attack is very limited in who can do it. Mm-hmm. Very limited. And then it took 110 more years of GPU computation to complete the second phase. So... While it seems huge, this shattered attack is still 100,000 times faster than a brute force. Wow. 100,000. Right. So instead of six and a half million years of GPU, it only took 6,500. Did I do the math right? Yeah, 100,000. And that's really, I mean, that makes a huge practical difference now. Especially Someone in a will. world
0: where like, you can, you know maybe if you have enough money, you can rent these things for however long you need.
1: Imagine how many droplets.
0: I don't want to pay (sighs) that bill.
1: No. So anyway, someone's going to correct my math in the feedback you watch or an IRC. Please do. Now, now, um, following Google's vulnerable disclosure policy, we will wait 90 days before releasing code that allows anyone to create a pair of PDFs that hash to the same sha one sum given two distinct images with some preconditions. Now, that's a good length of time for everyone to get their stuff in order uh, because once this method is released, it's still going to be a long time before anyone but Google and other huge operations can exploit this because it's it's not going to be trivial. People aren't going to suddenly be vulnerable to this, I'm sure, just because by virtue of the fact of the size of the thing Now, uh, the next website I want to take people to is shattered.it, which is a pretty cool name. So, in here, uh, they show us a whole lot of interesting stuff. And the first thing they do is they show you PDF one and PDF two. And the difference between the two PDFs is the color of the text at the top.
0: Yeah, here, I'll put uh, here's the first one. You can see a nice blue background on the top here. And we flip over to the other one. Believe it or not, yep. these have the exact same SHA-1 hash. And that's pretty cool. That is really cool. And they're not, I mean, the neat part too, for me at least, they're not like, they don't look like artificial documents. They don't look, you know, it, it just looks like any old PDF that you could find. It has design on it. Clearly, mm-hmm. designers were involved. It's a good example.
1: Yep. So, Wes and I both downloaded these and both ran independently a SHA-1, and a PDF, uh, sorry, an MD5, and we found that they matched. So it was interesting. I also, did you dra- did you upload them to see if they were...
0: No, uh, I did not.
1: A, yeah, you can, I uploaded them there, and they were both part of a collision. So they've, they've revealed how it can be done, but they've also supplied information on how it can be d- detected. I like that. That's awesome. So it, it's good. So... Basically, how can you protect yourself? Well, if you're using Chrome, you're automatically protected from insecure T- TLS and SSL search. And Firefox has stepped up its plans and deprecated show as of four days ago. So And files sent via Gmail or saved in Google Drive are automatically tested against this attack. We should try that. Someone in the channel, please upload one of those PDFs to Google Drive and let us know if it's what it tells you. That'll be interesting. Um, and that's it on this page. So, the next page I want to show people is a very pretty graphic. And by pretty, I mean it's pretty informative. And I really like how it's laid out. And it shows hash functions that you've probably never heard of before. Back to the 19, yeah, I never heard of it, but basically it shows you um, the current status of all these, including the 2 family, which have minor weaknesses going back nine years.
0: It's a really easy to read graph. That's what kind of stood out to me when when uh, I, I looked at this link. And it's, it's interesting how you can kind of you can see just and then it all goes red. Yeah.
1: I like it. I like it a lot.
0: Wow. Yeah, I like their little commentary, too, like talking about how, how, many, how much power Google used you know, to actually have to show that, that, yes, please stop using this thing, which is great that they're willing to you know, spend their own resources to do that. Clearly, they take security seriously.
1: Well, it, if you go back to the original blog post, there was one person from CWI. Oh, yes, I wanted to mention CWI. I wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners have never heard of CWI Amsterdam, but I want to point out a couple of important things about CWI. Let me see if I can reload this and pull up new information. Yes, there it is. CWI is the home of Python. Guido was there, and Dijkstra went there as well, on, uh, as in algorithms. Oh, really? Dykstra. Wow, that's, I did not know that. That's great. It's from CWI. So... But if you look here, there are there two folks from CWI, uh, Pierre Carpen, Carpman and Mark Stevens. But then there's one, two, three, four, five folks from Google. So Google put a lot of time and energy into this, including, I'm sure what they were doing is just say, hey, just run it on these servers in spare time. You know, like those screensavers you used to have that would...
0: <laughs> yes, detect- exactly. Or, it, it's the same or folding
1: at home or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah They're like,
0: yeah. hey, here you go. Have some GPUs, yeah. have some CPUs, yeah. go at it.
1: What a great
0: That's utilization awesome.
1: of, of resources.
0: And as a researcher, you know, uh, always strapped for funding, having to get grants. That must have been pretty exciting, being like, ooh, look yeah. at what we have now.
1: Uh, I would like to read more into this to find out over what period of time this 6,500, years of stuff was done.
0: I'd also be curious to know a little bit more about the implementation. Like, how did they manage the compute jobs? Did they use, you know, like Google's cloud, same thing that you could buy commercially? Or was yeah. it like... You know, canoe parallel.
1: Was this done over a weekend? Yeah, all right. the compute time, or was it over six months or something like that? How long did it take them to do it? That's a good because question. Because you know, state actors will want to be able to do that. Yes, they will.
0: I'm sure they're. I mean, they're sure they're already have already been researching and are even now more interested.
1: They have malware bots installed on all these laptops that are downloading and doing all the computations for them. So, exactly. So, Finally, let's go down to where are we now? Um, where was it? Yes, right over here. Uh, Git, just a few things on Git. The register reported a few things on Git. I really, based on this and other stuff I've read, I don't think Git is going to be vulnerable. Uh, here's what uh, Mr. Torvalds had to say about this. Secondly, The nature of this particular SHA-1 attack means that it's actually pretty easy to mitigate against, and there's already been two sets of patches posted for that mitigation. Now, if you trust that, and I do, I use Git, I don't think there's much of a risk here, but you may be interested to go and follow the email discussion which is already more than a couple of pages long. I see 120 Yep, lots. There's a link there in that article. So I would go and read that if you're interested in finding out more. But I think in the short term, we're going to be fine. Um, He also said, um, attack is hard. Discovery is easy. So fix it right rather than right now.
0: I like that. I think it's been a pretty mature response to it, right? Like there's been there's been a lot on both sides, there's, but it really has concentrated on like a good technical discussion. One of just, it's a good excuse to go learn. You know, we all use Git every day, or at least as most of us do. It has some really neat technical underpinnings with how it all works. So this is also a good excuse to just go go learn more about Git.
1: And final words, don't Don't panic. Things aren't suddenly going to become vulnerable. Uh, your systems aren't going to be taken down quickly. Take your time, should should be important. Review your systems, look for SHA-1 usage, figure out what the risk is, but it's best to try and stop using it. Don't stop using Git, but make sure all your certs are up to date, all your private CAs are now at least on SHA-2, and just don't don't, don't panic. It's, it's not worth panicking over.
0: Yep. Anytime something like this kind of happens, it's a good excuse to have a security review, go poke at the systems that you kind of forget about that sit off mm-hmm. in the corner somewhere and you trust. Mm-hmm. You don't even realize how much you trust. Mm-hmm.
1: It's not like it's an open SSL or, right. or a similar type thing that, yeah, you've got to fix it because there's something in the world. There's nothing in the wild right now. And even if it was in the wild, I have a feeling it may be a lot of work. Yes. But it's but a good we'll, excuse we'll,
0: to be ahead of the curve, right?
1: Yeah. We'll find out in three months. You got three months to to cover your ass
0: (laughs) exactly (laughs) i like that that's perfect all right well with that if you are watching this show i think that means you take security seriously and if that's the case there's really only one mobile carrier for you my friends that is ting head on over to techsnap.ting.com right now they're the mobile mobile provider that they're the only one that makes sense really that's it there's no contract so there's no early termination feeds No BS. That's Ting. They're on a mission to make mobile make sense. So some of the things I love about Ting starts at $6 a month. How reasonable is that? So if you need to have a bunch of lines, maybe you have a big family or you're running a small business, Ting is the place to look. Go on over to their rates page. Make it really easy. They have this great little grid here. How many lines do you need? How many minutes? Messages? Megabytes? You just pay for what you use. And if you're security conscious, Ting gets that. Ting security-conscious, too. so That's why they sell you... You can head on over to their store. They sell you phones unlocked. They don't get in... They're not like those other carriers. They don't get in the way of your updates. You want to go buy a phone straight from Apple, straight from Google. bring it on over to Ting. They're happy to let you do that. Bring your own phone. You'll get all the updates right from the upstream like you want. Be secure. Ting's perfect for that. Plus, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're like the Ting people. You're a cord cutter. You don't want to pay for a big cable plan you don't want to have a landline, maybe you don't even want to have, you know, a regular internet line, Ting's perfect for that. Going over to their blog, they're always talking about new apps, new ways, Sling TV, things like that where you can get from your Ting service or any other plan. If you're on the internet, here's how you can get the latest things. That's one of the things that stands out to me about Ting is they're, they're nerds like us. They want you to be empowered. You want to use a whole bunch of data this month? Great. Pay for what you use. You want tethering? It's included. You want voicemail, caller ID, hotspot, three-way calling, call forwarding, all those things are included. That's what makes Ting, that's why I say no BS, because that's what it is. That's how Ting works. There's no like mysterious line items on the bill. It's just those buckets. How many lines do you have? How many minutes did you use? Messages? Well, SMS. I don't even know what that is. Why would I use it? But if you do use it, those are the prices right there on the screen. So, Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. That lets them know that you appreciate them sponsoring us. There's tons of great stuff there, so you will not regret going. Thank you, Ting. And with that, we return to your regularly scheduled TechSnap program. Ah, What do you got next for us, Dan? That was a big story. I'm going to go off and uh, check all my hashes.
1: The next one was the one that trumped this one. Oh, heavy hitter and, today. And this is the one... That involved Project Zero or where I wanted to reference Project Zero. I suddenly got panicked and I was thinking, I'm talking about Google. I'm not talking about Project Zero yet. Where's Project Zero? Oh, there it is. They've got
0: a they handed a lot yep. of cookie jars this week.
1: Yep, yep. We do, we do. So this one is called Cloud Bleed. Why is it called Cloud Bleed? We'll find out later. And not exaggerating, this affects millions of websites. Oh, yeah. No exact no exaggeration whatsoever. None whatsoever. So, now, we've already talked about Project Zero. Project Zero was involved in, in, in de- detecting this and reporting it. And the chap that did this, it started off with a tweet. Let's see that tweet.
0: Aha, uh-huh, from Tavis Ormandy. Yes. Could someone from Cloudflare Security urgently contact me? So, this is what started it off, huh?
1: This is Friday night at about 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So, just... A week ago? 11 days ago?
0: Oh, I like this first response. This is pretty much one of the most horrifying tweets a Cloudflare security employee could see on a Friday afternoon. Oh, on a Friday, too.
1: That's the worst. Oh, yeah. Yep. But, obviously, some... It, 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 how many guys... This guy has how many people following him? Let's see here. So, he has... Forty-seven, forty-six and a half thousand people following. Someone in that forty-six thousand would know someone who works at Cloudflare, Cloudware, Cloudware, Cloudflare.
0: Cloudflare. That's a hard one to say Thank today.
1: You. Thank you. Um, it's been a rough day at work. Uh, I've had I've had stuff down, Ooh. and it's not been good. So my mind is totally gone. Yep. But we persevere here
0: at the TextNet program for you. We're
1: persevering. We're persevering on to the next report, which okay. So this was on Friday. Um, it was it was actually UTC eleven hundred on the eighteenth of Feb. So the blog post comes up at seventeen fifteen UTC on the nineteenth. So the next day, uh, approximately thirty six hours later. Approximately thirty six hours. After he, he's been in touch, after he first tweeted, he posts this. It took every ounce of strength not to call this issue cloud bleed. We'll come back to that. So, he start, starts off with this thing called corpus distillation, which I really liked. And I wanted to find out what it, what it involved. And I went and look, went looking for it. And it's actually very interesting. So, it's, it's a way of testing stuff. It's a way of exercising your code. Uh, say you've got this program that is, say, a um, in the example they gave here, it's something for playing um, flash files. So what you do is you download a whole bunch of flash files off the internet and run them all through your code and find out which parts of the code it exercises. And then what you can do is you can drill down so you run an algorithm to generate a minimal set of sample files that exercises the entire set of flash code.
0: Oh, that's great. I like that. It reminds me of um, things like uh, QuickCheck or other things where you're kind of generating things and then um, or um, American yep. Fuzzy Lop or whatever they're using to, yep. to do automated fuzzy like that that'll discover what code it's testing. And...
1: Yep. So instead of writing tests, you, re- you use actual user-generated That's data great. to exercise your code, and you just figure out what bits you need. So th- th- this is great. I-, I I loved it. Anyway, back to the bug report. So they had been fetching a few live samples, and in those samples, they observed encryption keys, cookies, passwords, chunks of post data, and even HTTP requests for other major cloud Flare hosted sites from other users. Oh, boy. So what had happened is they they had found some odd data, and they went to find out what this odd data was. And when they looked at it, they found this stuff. So once we understood what we were seeing and the implications, we immediately stopped and contacted Cloudflare security. So this is really good. Note the word stop, and I'm going to sneeze.
0: You just uh, you take your time. You sneeze there, good sir. That happens to the best of us. And he's back. I'm back.
1: So now, note the keyword stopped. That's the right thing to do. And all of you budding security people need to take note of this. If you downloaded stuff and analyzed it and put it out under a bulletin board or sold it on a list or showed all your friends, nope, that's the wrong thing to do you notice that something is wrong gather your facts and report it i like what they did here is right yeah so,
0: there'd be plenty of time to brag and talk about your story about how you found it and all the de- like there's plenty of time for that later better start the process now and then we'll get to that stuff
1: so a few lines down comes this tw- twitter report which we've already covered but now i want to go on to the incident report which uh, Cloudflare put up on the 23rd, which was four days after the bug report. But I want to point out that everything had been fixed by the time the bug had been reported. Okay. So what Cloudflare said about it is, it turned out that in some unusual circumstances, which I'll detail below, our edge servers are running past the end of a buffer, and returning memory that contained private information such as HTTP cookies, authentication tokens, HTTP post bodies, and other sensitive data. And some of that data had been cached by search engines. For the avoidance of doubt, Cloudflare customer SSL private keys were not leaked. That is despite articles I've seen that said that they were leaked. Cloudflare says that they weren't late, so I believe Cloudflare. Cloudflare has always terminated SSL connections through an isolated instance of NGINX that was not affected by this bug. We quickly identified the problem and turned off three minor Cloudflare features, email obfuscation, server-side excludes, and automatic HTTPS rewrites. All that were all using the same HTML parser chain that was causing the leakage. At that point, it was no longer possible for memory to be returned in an HTTP response.
0: Nice. I mean, that seems very straightforward. Yeah, they jumped right on it. Yep.
1: Now. They had had multiple teams working on this 24 hours a day to get rid of it because they had a team over on this side and a team over that side, and they would hand over, and they solved everything very quickly. We'll get down to that in a bit. The bug was serious because the leaked memory could provide private information, and because it had been cached by search engines, we have also not discovered any evidence of malicious exploits of the bug or other reports of its existence." So, the greatest period of impact was six days, February 13th to 18th, with around one in every 3.3 million requests, potentially resulting in memory leaks.
0: I like that they got the numbers there. That's nice.
1: So, that they're not telling us how many requests there were. Right. They're just saying one in every 3.3 million. So, that's about zero 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 three I'm having trouble anyway <laughs> it, it's a very small number but they're, they're taking it seriously right.
0: and we should keep in mind that they uh, they provide the uh, you know they're the edge for a large number of connections worldwide
1: yep did you just hear a fan oh yes spin up behind me are you terminating it, some
0: like, SSL up in there there Dan
1: can you hear it now yep all right. Hopefully it won't get too noisy. I have a feeling because the temperature just hit 85. Oh, toasty Dan over there. It's 86. Yeah, wow. Um, Is it annoying? I'll open the door.
0: Doesn't bother me, but uh, hey, audience, you chime in if you're annoyed. Yep.
1: So, for the avoidance of doubt, the bug is not in Raggle itself. That's what they were using. It is in Cloudflare's use of Raggle. This is our bug and not the fault of Raggle. So they're admitting fault. They're not deflecting to someone else and say, oh, listen, this is software. Fess up when you've made a mistake. Always confess your errors. I think that's very admirable.
0: I think so as well. And you get a much, you know, people are, you know, it's a scary thing. You have to admit you were wrong, made a mistake. But people treat you a lot better if you're upfront about it rather than trying to obfuscate things or especially like, the truth is going to come out anyway, especially in a situation like this. So, props to Cloudflare.
1: So, they go into a bit of detail. We They killed the email obfuscation thing about 47 minutes after receiving notice of the problem. And three hours later, they did the, the HTTP rewrite. And then... Uh, it took them a while longer to get rid of the other stuff, but basically, by the time the bug report was filed, everything w- w- was fixed. Now, there's nothing else down here. The rest of the uh, way, way down. The external impact. I want to skip over all the detail of what the bug is, but external impact is about halfway down. So, uh, yeah, right there. Oh, yep. So, an additional problem was that Google and other search engines had cached some of the leaked memory through their normal crawling and caching processes. We wanted to ensure that this memory was scrubbed from search engine caches before the public disclosure of the problem so that third parties would not be able to go hunting for sensitive information. That's really good. I wouldn't have thought about caching.
0: No, me either. That's um and it's great that they were able to work with these people and you know Google and other providers were able to kind of start scrubbing this stuff before yeah. everyone starts searching the caches.
1: I, I can't imagine the feeling when somebody said, Oh, oh my god. I can't imagine working there your and, heart would just you know just oh, yeah. drop. Oh. So on to the next little article, which is from Colin Percival. Um, now uh, full disclosure, I know Colin personally uh, through FreeBSD Project and through Tarsnap and CAN, stuff like that. So, he came right out and said that Tarsnap is not affected by bleed because they don't trust TLS, Man in the Middle Services. But if you use the same password anywhere else, in other words, anywhere else and on Tarsnap, then you know they may have your TarSnap password not leaked through TarSnap but through somewhere else. You should change it. And yes, don't use the same password in different places. Please don't. No, just don't. Is the type of thing that happens. So then he said, "Is it being cloud- called Cloudbleed?" Well, no, he wasn't going to call it Cloudbleed. So of course that's what everyone is calling it, and that's how it went. And now it's Cloudbleed forever. Yeah, and down there at the end of it, Tavis chimes in that says, his work here is done. And I like that.
0: I like that. That's beautiful. I suppose that's a, one of the modern incentives for finding something like this is, hey, you get to name it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, sadly, this may take some companies down. Um, if you go on to the next tweet, uh, basically, if you're HIPAA regulator, or you a customer who is, and you use Cloudflare during those dates, you may have sensitive information that's been released and you got to deal with it. This, this just isn't, you know, someone may have seen your document as you saved it. This may be, for example, customer health records. Yeah, but that's serious stuff. Deal. It's a big deal. And to help those who want to go looking, here's a list of sites that use Cloudflare and may have possibly been affected by the Cloudbead uh, leak. So if you're interested, go there, have a look through, see what happened, and there you go.
0: Yep, they've just got a big raw list of all the sorted names of companies. So you can go check it out. Here we go right now. Oh, boy, this is a big text file. So big GitHub won't even show it to us without having to click on the raw file. Isn't that fun?
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. (sighs) Now, um, there's not much for you to do now because the bug's been fixed, it's not in your code, but if you're on Cloudflare and you got sensitive information in there, you better be evaluating what you have to do and which of your customers and clients you have to contact, because you certainly do have to contact them.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's important. You need to just pro- properly disclose it now that you've been
1: notified. and <sighs> Do the right thing. Yep.
0: That's, this has been a very interesting story to watch unfold. I'm glad that things got buttoned up so quickly. Um, but it does, yeah. much like, you know, the S3 outage that's been going on today, it really does strike home, like, when you rely so much on external services uh, or other people who are at, at your edge or between you and your customers, things like this that could be completely out of your control can be a security risk or a risk of, you know, operational downtime, et cetera. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add to the audience on this one, Dan?
1: Find out if some of the services that you're using personally are on Cloudflare, because if they are, maybe those services have been compromised. Yep.
0: Go spend some time with grep and uh, this uh, GitHub file. Awesome. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, sir. That brings us to the next sponsor of our fine program. That's IX Systems. Go over to ixsystems.com/techsnap. Check out their blog. Go look at the awesome machines that they have ready for you. One of my favorites is this free NAS mini right there. We've got some at the studio. We've got one at home. Most of my friends have got my family with one. So you may be asking, IX Systems. Maybe I haven't heard of those before. Why would I trust this company? Well, you've really got that backwards. IX Systems is the awesome hardware provider you wish you had learned about years ago, but you've learned right now. No going back. Anytime you're thinking about that, you know, if you're you're getting hardware for a company, if you're running your own small business, or you just need something for the house, before you go to any of those big providers where you're just going to be treated like another cog in the machine, if you want a more human approach, if you want to work with a company that cares about your project as much as you do, Don't go anywhere else. Go to IX Systems. They have awesome, a whole staff of awesome sales. Instead of like going to a website and browsing through and putting your cart and wondering, "Ah, is this going to work? Do I have the right kind of stuff? Does it come with the rails? Is everything going to be taken account of? Maybe you have time for that. But if you're a busy professional, I don't think you do. And IX Systems is ready to work with you. They've got it all figured out. You let them know what you need. They'll work with you to assess, hey, what really are your requirements here? What do you need, and then they will think through all of the details, so that it comes out perfect on the other side. They'll configure everything for you, ship it to the data center for you. Data center just plugs it into the rack, turns it on, and it's good to go. Look at those people they work with: Adobe, Groupon, LinkedIn, Splunk, Tumblr, Hitachi. These are serious names because IX makes serious systems. If you don't believe me, just going over to their blog, you'll see some of the stuff they're up, you know, they're up to right now. They're just about ready to go to Container World 2017. They keep pace with the technology of today. They know what's important, big-scale systems or small-scale systems, and they are excited to work with you on your next server. So, don't delay. Head on over to ixsystems.com techsnap. That will link you to an awesome PDF they've got for buying systems for open-source software. They've been around since... They've been around forever. They know the industry. They know open-source. They know hardware. They have awesome partnerships with Intel with their beautiful processors. So if you need it done, iX is the place to do it. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. And that brings us to this week's feedback. Okay, looks like we've got an article to, or in a letter article. What am I saying? Looks like we've got a letter today from Tyler. He had previously written in about transmission um permissions, so let's jump in here. I just wanted to say thank you for addressing my question regarding transmission permission errors in FreeNAS a few weeks back. After that episode, I took another look at my setup and lo and behold, I found my mistake. Turns out I had set up the permissions just fine, however, my ignorance in working with FreeNAS jails made me look a fool. Oh Tyler, don't be so hard on yourself. The folder on my dataset which I assigned to the transmission jail was creatively named Downloads. When I added a torrent via the transmission web interface, the destination folder showed as slash slash downloads. I initially thought that this was just the way that the jail mapped to the dataset. However, once I changed that to the path I specified as the destination in the jail, in this case it was slash mount slash downloads, then everything worked just fine. This is a fairly obvious looking back However, I just wanted to share this as perhaps there are others new to FreeNAS jails who may have run into a similar issue. As for Mark, who asked if he should make the move to FreeNAS back in episode 306, I would tell him a resounding yes. I set up my FreeNAS box about a year ago, replacing an Ubuntu box Tyler was running, and he hasn't looked back. Once I tried it a few times in a VM, it took me all of an hour or less to get up and running the first time on bare metal. It truly does run like an appliance and has been relatively maintenance-free. I've already tried replacing one of my mirror drives, which was painless. Oh, nice. That's good to hear. And the old cheap USB key I initially used for the OS also died on me, but was no problem to replace, in part because I ensured that I had backed up my config file. Many thanks as always, Tyler. Well, that's nice. That um, that kind of touches on a lot of things we've talked about on the, for the FreeNAS platform, and he's kind of just been through all of it right there. It's awesome that it's working so well with him, even with a few hiccups.
1: I've heard of people using two USB keys and mirroring them.
0: Oh, nice! That and way. that's
1: very easy to do because you know it's ZFS.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. It's already it already has all of those capabilities right. and more.
1: I, I'm. I wonder if they're. Oh no, I don't think the USB key would be ZFS. I'm, right. I'm not right. sure. Right. You could probably it, even it do a naive be a mirror, right? Yeah. yeah. Like it, it it might be gmirror. Mm. I've done a lot of. Um, uh, and two that's hard using drives. the geli subsystem. Yeah. No, not Geli. Gally. encryption. Oh, yeah. Sorry,
0: what well, am I saying? Geom. Geom, yes. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So Geom's just incredibly flexible and allows you to, to create new de- new devices from a developer point of view. But what you do is you create a G-Mirror, and those two drives in a G-Mirror can then act independently. You don't even have to load G-Mirror. G-Mirror just coordinates the two drives. but. It, if Mirror for some reason wasn't working, or you wanted to pull one of those two drives out and put it in another system, you've got it there. That, that's just your OS. And then people often will create, uh, like FreeNAS does, your data drives are, are separate and you mount them separately and you have your OS somewhere else.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. That seems like a good way to do it. Uh, and really that way, as long as, you know, as long as you have one working USB drive. The system needs to reboot. If it needs to do anything, it'll just come right back, grab the data from the data set, and away you go.
1: Yep. Free, free NAS, if you're looking for a nice little way to store large amounts of data or even small amounts of data in a nice, secure way, it is truly just a little appliance.
0: I think and, it really shines for those cases where, like when what Tyler was talking about here, where he had to replace a drive, you know, that might be, especially if ZFS isn't something that you use in your day-to-day life, you're not familiar with administrating it on the command line, that could be something where like, okay, stop my whole workflow, I'm going to spend two hours reading the handbook, getting this working. With Freenas, you're just like, boop, boop, click some buttons in the UI, plug in the new drive, done. Did you have any comments on this one, or did you want to talk maybe about the the jail snafu he had? I don't know if you have any uh, insights
1: there. I, I've never used jails with, with Freenas. I, I've My direct experience with FreeNAS is extremely limited and several years ago, so I can't comment on it. But I do know that a lot of people find success with it and they really like it. And some people make the transition eventually from being FreeNAS exclusive to then having other FreeBSD boxes around just because they've used it. So I think it's a great way for anyone to get involved with, with mass reliable storage.
0: I totally agree. That was the only feedback item this week. So, hey, audience challenge yes. to you. Please write in. We love reading your feedback here on TechSnap. And in lieu of more feedback, I thought maybe we should have some feedback from Dan. What yeah. do you got for us, Dan?
1: Well, we're going to have a quick tour of the rack. I'm gonna cuz people have commented several times on it. It is I'll see beautiful. If I can get it any closer. That's about as close as I think as we're going to get for now. But, so this rack I bought off Craigslist, believe it or not. It is an APC uh, 2200, no, 3100, something like that. I think some people call it a net shelter, but it's it's what we had at work. And it, it was one of my first encounters with a rack. And I very much liked it. So when I first got it, I had this PDU, which is a managed APC unit, and it was up here in the top. But I'd quickly run out of of, uh, electrical outlets. So what I did is I bought this non-managed PDU that's up at the top, and it's been sitting on my floor for a couple of weeks. So I disconnected this one, moved it down, moved that one up there, but then had to move this other PDU that's down. Here, oh, yikes. I had to move that one down a little bit as well. So, then we moved... Okay, so, what do we have here? We have... That's my PDU. This is a power supply for the LED lights that you see around the outside. This is my Cisco 81, 881W. It's basically a VPN to work for my work font. Oh, nice. Um, this is a Apple time capsule. This is a ripe probe. It sits there and they send it DNS queries and it tests the internet for them.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I remember hearing about those devices. That's really neat that you have one.
1: It is very cool. Um, uh, this is my uh, router to Verizon. It's connected directly into my APC, uh, sorry, my NetApp PDU-1 or PDU-2. Uh, In the back here, it's hard to see them. There's two tower cases, um, small tower cases. That's TAPO-1 and TAPO-2. This is a a Triplite 16-port KVM, um, Astute, Viewers will notice that there are two more cables hooked up. They're hooked up to the Dell 410s that are down below. Oh, nice. This is a a SDLT tape library. I forget how many, um, I think it's 24 tapes it can hold. This is an ancient, oh. Let's go down there. A little bit further down. Yeah, so this is the SDL machine tape library. This is the uh, DLT-7000. It has two tape drives, and it's been busy erasing old tapes recently. Nice. This is Brawler. Brawler, if you're listening, this is named after you. This is a, a Dell R410. it's due to be a monitoring uh, unit. I'm going to move all my Nagios and Libre NMS onto this box.
0: Oh, very nice.
1: This is named after Dax. Ryan, if you're listening, this is named after your dog. Oh, and by the way, hi, Laszlo. Uh, So this one is going to become a database server. These each have four SAS drives. I forget what size they are. This is new. This is my main storage unit. It has, let me see over here, I can find out how much space it has. Uh, Sorry. Okay, so new has about 45 plus 27, do the math. 73 terabytes of storage.
0: Nice. I There's like box. the sound of that.
1: I like that. So, this is where my main back backups go. There's at least three years of backups in here. The server down below is Slocum. S L O U uh, C U M. First person to solo navigate the world in a sailing ship.
0: That's a great name.
1: He was from Nova Scotia, don't you know? Oh, ho, ho. So, uh, Slocum is my main development box. This is where I have a copy uh, of the Freshports database and, uh, and a website that runs, runs there for me to develop at home.
0: So, it should go without saying that um, any of these that are regular compute nodes, you might say, are running FreeBSD, I assume?
1: Yes. This box and this box are both running FreeBSD. These will run FreeBSD. Uh, well, they run it now, but they will eventually have services on FreeBSD and the two tape library boxes up top uh, up here. The tower case is in the back. I don't think you can really see them. Those are both running 3BSD. Awesome. And then down here in the bottom, you can't see it at all. Can you see down there now? Oh, yep. Yeah. Right in there in the back where all these power cables are coming out of, there's an APC uh, 2200 uh, UPS which is plugged into the 20 amp circuit in the back there. Um, one day we'll have a, a view of the front of the rack and the front of the rack looks very pretty.
0: Oh, that's the private view.
1: Oh, yes, it does. We'll have a view later. So that, that's enough for now. If people have any questions they want to ask, oh, PF Sense. Sorry, someone asked about that. Cisco is merely for my day job. PFSense is running on this little box here.
0: Oh, look at you. The audience was like set to be disappointed, and you're not going to let them have it.
1: This is PFSense right here, this little box. There there are pictures. Uh, if you look at my Flickr account, there's PFSense there. Cisco is for work. Nice.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: That's okay. awesome. So, any other things that I'm being accused of? Yeah.
0: You so. traitor. You traitor, you damn. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cisco is behind PF Sense here.
0: Nice. Right. It and that's probably just a, direct... a, little, a little box yeah. that you can then join onto and be on the work network.
1: I believe there may be some Linux in my TV. Oh. It's on a separate VLAN. The Linux VLAN.
0: Or the untrusted Uh, VLAN, perhaps. The
1: the, the entertainment VLAN. Oh,
0: I like that. That's a fun name.
1: Let's put this back up here and back like that. And am I level again? Look at your beautiful face. Yep. And even in focus. There we go. A little bit further forward like that, I think.
0: Well, thank you very much for the wonderful tour of your rack there. I am now thoroughly jealous if I wasn't already.
1: (sighs) This is an accumulation... That started in 1998, okay? There's no hardware dating back to 1998, but this is this is over almost 20 years. Wow. 98, 20 years, yeah, tw- 20 years. It's, it's a long, long hobby, and not all of the gear has been purchased. So a lot of it's been donated.
0: That makes sense. Okay, well, with that, if you are as jealous as I am, but maybe you don't have enough space in your life I know I don't. I don't have room for a whole rack. Maybe you don't. You know you don't have this hardware setup. The room. I've got the solution for you, and it's our last sponsor of the day. That is DigitalOcean. What is DigitalOcean? They're the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server on demand. So hey, you need some backup space. Maybe you're seeing the, some of the outages today, and you're like, ah, I really need to diversify my cloud portfolio. Get started at DigitalOcean. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That will get you a $10 credit. From there, it just takes 55 seconds to spin up an awesome new server. They've got first-class free BSD support. If you want, you can load NetBSD or OpenBSD with a little bit of trickery. Plus, they've got a whole suite of Linux distributions. They've just started. They now have load balancers. They have monitoring. They have attachable, expandable storage. SSDs on every one of their droplets awesome network connection, 40 gigabit e connections right to the KVM hypervisors, first class virtualization, none of that OpenVZ stuff you see on some other providers. Plus, it all starts at $5 a month. Head on over to their pricing page. You will not believe it. One of my favorite parts of DigitalOcean. They've got hourly pricing. So maybe you're like, hey, I should be like Google, donating a little bit to the security community. I'm going to start trying out some hashes. Maybe I need to do Some security research, but I don't need a whole fleet of servers for the next year or even a month. That's where DigitalOcean's hourly price, look at that, 2 gigs memory, 2 core processor, 40 gigs disk, 3 terabytes of transfer, which is way more than you'll ever probably need on this, 3 cents an hour. That's right, 3 cents an hour. And all of that comes with, let's say you have multiple of those, that comes with private networking. If they're in the same data center, speaking of data centers, DigitalOcean has data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. Pretty much wherever you need to go, DigitalOcean is there to take you there. If you need more reasons to love DigitalOcean, check out their awesome API. They really dogfood this stuff. Their whole interface is built with the API as the back end. So the API that you get to use, it's the same API that DigitalOcean uses themselves. That's how you know it's so good. And if that's not enough, DigitalOcean is an awesome community member. If you're searching for just about any kind of how-to, how do I get started in the cloud? How do I start hosting a blog? How do I use Linux or FreeBSD to do stuff? Hey, I want to play with the ZFS. These days, the first place you'll find it is DigitalOcean because they have awesome community-maintained documentation, but DigitalOcean shows how much they care. They hire real editors to come in and make these documents top-notch. So, if you're like me, You need some more computers to work on your next awesome project, head over to digitalocean.com, use promo code SNAPOcean. That tells you, tells them rather, that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Thank you, DigitalOcean, and go get started today. And that brings us to this week's roundup. What do you got for us this week, Dan?
1: We have false flags. Uh-oh. And the first time, and the first time I heard that term, I said, "What the hell is that?" And it turns out it's a military term. And if you go and read the Wikipedia, Wikipedia,
0: you have to pronounce
1: it first. But if you can pronounce it, go to Wikipedia, look this and up, re- read up about false flags, and you will be taken to another page where you will learn what perfidy is. Perfidy is a very interesting word, but anyway, that's
0: homework for you,
1: audience. On to the art of deception. So, basically, what they're talking about here is when when security researchers are analyzing um, stuff that they found, they find certain commonalities and, and they say, oh, okay, well, this code looks a lot like that code. And they use the same bit of stuff here as they did there. So, all of this code belongs to the same group of people. And to make it easier, we're going to call them this name. Now, they may not know where they are, they may not know who they are, but they have a good idea. They can also pay attention to, for example, what time of day was this code compiled? Oh, look, they don't do anything here. They must be going to lunch. So you can work up a time zone because, believe it or not, a lot of this stuff is done by state actors, people with a nine-to-five more or less job. So it helps you figure out who they are. So what has always been... A theory is that people pretend to be someone else. And yeah, that can be done. But these guys start talking about it. How easy is it to actually pretend to be somebody else? How far do you have to go in order to do that? And I listened to about the first 20 minutes of the video. But then I got called away for delivery. So I couldn't listen to the rest of it. So your homework and my homework is to finish listening to this.
0: That looks like a a great video. It kind of highlights... How important metadata is, and it kind of reminds me of almost like um you know old school crime detection where you have you know you have hey this gang strikes with these patterns we don't know who they are or which members they have but these are their characteristics, and
1: and you know what it also reminded me of uh, a free BSD, uh mini project called reproducible builds uh-huh. where if you build here and then you build there you should be able to produce exact same binaries, but you don't because you get timestamps in them. Uh, And what they're doing is they're working towards being able to reproduce a build uh, so you have exactly the same binary. And this sort of timestamp thing that they use reminded me of that. Oh, yeah. Interesting. It's trivial.
0: Okay, as with the roundup, it rolls on. Our next story, we've got the story of how researchers are able to exfiltrate data by blinking the LEDs on a hard drive. Now that is a vector I would not have suspected and I'm sure I would be vulnerable to.
1: Now, didn't we recently talk about something, blinking lights or video or was it sound or something? Yes, it's amazing
0: the different ways that you can sneak data out of places.
1: So air gap has always been an important way of doing this. So over the years, numerous studies have demonstrated that it is almost, keyword almost impossible, to uh, exfiltrate that's get out data from air-gapped networks in various ways. And security experts warned to cover our webcam to avoid being spied on by sophisticated software. So this particular malware is able to transmit information by, forc- <coughs> Pardon. by forcing the LED indicators to blink. And I'm not talking blink like blinking lights where you see the disk activity, they're talking about 5,800 cycles per second.
0: Wow. So
1: you, you can't see that blink. It appears to be a steady stream. So, so basically, that gives you about 4K per second.
0: Not much, but uh, more than enough, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. That's wow. enough to get delicate information out of here. So... What I find interesting is, in the following table, I reported the maximum bandwidth of different receivers. So, they have an entry-level DLSR, a high-end security camera, uh, a camera, a webcam, a smartphone camera. So, something like a Samsung Galaxy S6 uh, can get you 50 to 60 bits per second.
0: Interesting.
1: So that's not a lot, but you can just set up a camera, aim through a window, add a little LED, and you can get the data out.
0: And if you have enough control to start this process, you may very well be able to get, you know, isolate exactly the data that you want. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you need to siphon everything. You just need the, the little bit of bits that are, you know, their private key or whatever.
1: If you've got root, oh no, or send me the hash of the Etsy password file. But you can't read it anyway, so it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> right. But I can definitely say that, you know, you set things up and then you can just, you know, you go into that meeting or you have send the tech in and they're leaving their camera recording the whole time and boom, mm-hmm. it's yours. Yep. <sighs> That's evil. And very clever, as we see so often on this show. <sighs> okay. Up next, as always, we keep going. It looks like we've got uh, some comments here on Z-Rep. What is Z-Rep?
1: ZREP is a free replication backup failover program. I should have known. So, <clears throat> so I thought it was something of grep, like compression, gzip <laughs> yeah. grep or something. But, or
0: Zcat kind of style, yeah. Yep.
1: So the the author jumped in here because he had seen some comments saying it was only Solaris. And the reason they get that is when you go to the original source, it says, you know, bolthole.com slash Solaris slash ZREP. So that's a way for people to conclude that, but basically, it can be used for a whole lot of different stuff, <clears throat> especially ZFS replication. So I'm interested in having a look at this, and I'm going to make sure that Alan sees it and, see, and lets me know what he thinks of it, because I have yet to get into any sort of ZFS replication. And if the author is out there, they're welcome to send us in some more information about how they're using it. That would be awesome. Oh, and they mentioned my Freshports website here, so we'll have a look about that. Oh, ho, ho. I like that. That's awesome. Yes. Okay, so I'll add a comment in there later and find out.
0: Excellent. I look forward to seeing that. Ah, our next story is not as much fun. The FCC has reversed the net neutrality ISP transparency rules that we had really just gotten in place.
1: Bummer. Yes. Now, people may wonder, why does net neutrality... Why do I care about this? Hey, I really want my free data. This is great. Yep, yep. So imagine someone, say, like Comcast, who has their own content and they say, hey, listen, you can watch all our stuff for free on your phones. You don't have to worry about it. You can just download it data free. Don't worry about it. Oh, but hold on. For, for Netflix, you're, we're going to charge you. We're going to charge you for that. Oh, unless Netflix pays us. So in effect, what, what it does is it creates, you can have this for free or you can pay for this. And it makes it very difficult for new entry into the market. It makes it very difficult for people to get the stuff they want. Um, some people say, well no, they have to be able to to, to write, they have to be able to filter whatever they need to filter and so that, that's a red herring. Being able to filter malicious stuff is totally different from net neutrality. Filtering crap stuff is totally outside net neutrality. and if there are any ISPs listening and they want to tell me more about this, I would be happy to hear how net neutrality imposes a burden upon you. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear and I will give you a voice. Yes, you can come right on the show. this show. But everything I've heard from people involved with this is that net neutrality is the big guys. And by big guys, I mean the nationwide ISPs who have a hand in, in delivery stuff other than just giving you a pipe to your door. They have a vested interest in their own products. They are not merely delivery agents, they are content providers as well. And if you're a content provider, you can't be discriminating against other content providers in my opinion. And if if I'm paying you for a 75 meg down, you better not be throttling someone because you don't like your competition just don't do it do the right thing i fi- i find throttling immoral don't do it thank you
0: this all kind of also leads to or can lead i should say you know into more centralization where you just have a few services and that can lead to you know filtering or censorship or other things so suddenly hey you don't you know you don't want to go to a, the Jupiter broadcasting website because you have to pay for that data but i can watch it on youtube but if if you only watch on youtube that means we have to abide by whatever rules and regulations and other things that YouTube may impose that we wouldn't have to as independent content contributors. Yes. And it really just pollutes the whole system.
1: It it also reminds me of, oh, you can can stream Pandora and this other music site for free, but any other music site you're going to have to pay for it. It's not going to be included in your free data. And it really irks me when they start saying certain services are included free in in your data. Well, if you can include that free in your data, you can include all the rest free in my data too. Don't be playing that game with me. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, it's like that old phrase people like to say, uh, picking winners and losers. (sighs) No fair at all, I should say. Okay. No,
1: it's ridiculous.
0: Well said, well said, sir. On to our next roundup item. And this is a security review and kind of talking about um, issues that have already appeared with different password manager apps. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, I found this interesting, and I did find my password keeper on here. I'm not telling anyone which one it was, Mm -hmm. but I found it on here. And I'm not concerned at all by what they found, namely because... We performed a security analysis on the most popular Android Password Manager applications from the Google Play Store based on download count. Okay, I don't use Android at the moment. I have in the past, but I don't now. And we found several implementation flaws resulting in serious security vulnerabilities. And I'm not going to go into the details, but if you use a password manager on an Android, you should read this post. And it mentions LastPass, uh, Keeper Password, and 1Password. So there are some others here. So just read it. Yeah, it seems like a helpful thing.
0: And if we are going to be adopting using these things, especially the the web service, integrated app service things where you don't have that much transparency, it may not be open source, etc. It's nice to have some people checking up on it. Okay. And then on to onto something we just have to touch on because it's been affecting people all day. Yes. And that yes. is the Amazon S three outage. What fun yes. for everyone. Turns out the internet is broken. Hey, but you're still here on our independent network that doesn't need it.
1: Um we the dashboard is not changing color because it's on an S three website. Sorry. So basically, Amazon Web Services dashboard cannot be updated because it was on S3, which is broken.
0: Yes, I think that was that was so funny. And there's been a lot of complaints and conversations about the way Amazon chooses to handle their outages. There's a lot of people that complain that, you know, you go to their status page, and even though everyone can see they're in the middle of an outage, it says everything's green. What's the deal with that? So there's been a lot of discussion. And this was just, I. it sounds like from some comments I read from Amazon employees that This was not an intended dependency on S3, which is maybe why they were able to repair it so quickly. But still, it just...
1: Now, freshports.wordpress.com is not hosted by me, but it does contain the status. And I update that before I do any work on the website, just in case.
0: Oh, nice. I like that. That's a good way to do it. I
1: also put it out on Twitter, but not everyone follows Twitter.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: I get. I guess I could have status.freshports.org redirect to WordPress. Yeah, freshports.wordpress.com.
0: I think that's a pretty common way to do it: is have that, you know, have your status subdomain redirect um, to an external provider that, or at least a different provider than you have yep. as your main website.
1: Yeah, and I think that Alan has a droplet just for status. Right. I, I think he does.
0: That's yep. a great. I mean, not to have a random sponsor of it, but that's a great use for a droplet or a different cloud provider if you'd prefer. Um, but it's an easy, cheap way to diversify your infrastructure. And this seems like a good, a good thing. Like Amazon provides some very interesting services, but they now underlie a huge amount of the internet. And we kind of have to be careful about that because they have one outage and suddenly you know, a ton of companies also have outages. And it may not be like S3 seems like a winning thing, right? Simple storage service. It works very well. Yeah. It's a good service. But... If uptime is important to you, this may be the time to start looking at, hey, can I also replicate this data to another cloud provider? Maybe I should have um, a small dedicated data center. That that would be interesting.
1: De- uh, cloud providers with big pipes to other cloud providers. Right. Yeah,
0: make it really ah. easy, reasonable rates. I'm sure you'll have to pay for all that transfer. But, hey, yeah. if you, know, you need the six nines or whatever, then that's kind of what you need to do. Any other comments on this Amazon outage? I'm sure we'll have more to talk about next week no, as the I details feel, become known.
1: I feel sorry for the AWS folks having to fix this and, and the pressure they must be under. Um, we're laughing at their misfortune, but it's it's all in, in yes, good gest. there's
0: also the sympathies there, and uh, best of luck restoring your service. Okay, and then uh, on to our last roundup item. It's something you may have seen if you're a viewer of the LUP program. We touched on it very briefly This is a little bit scary and kind of hilarious. Yes,
1: this is a great post. It's a very long post, and there's a lot of things I would like to cover in it. But it came in too late today. It was released today. Uh, We'll cover it next week. But basically, there's all these clad pet teddy bears that are sitting around, and they got leaked. The complete database for all the users got leaked. Um, Basically, it looks like this company had a MongoDB instance sitting somewhere on a public IP address with no authentication, no firewall, no nothing in front of it, and everything got downloaded. And sadly, it looks like this company has basically just faded away, disappeared. Their their shares have tanked. Uh, No one's answering. It looks like this is just a website that's left running because no one's turned off turned it off yet
0: right and it, it's consumers I'm sure you could, you might might even still be able to buy them people still have them in their homes they may still be using them mm-hmm. and uh, you don't you might not know that all of your recorded files are now available to
1: anyone on the internet well I'm, I'm sure that if for some reason I could not get to fresh ports it would continue to run for years um, something very big would have to happen for it to stop working and that's just what's happened with this website
0: it's funny Is when you do a good por- enough job por- of um setting things up then yeah you know if you don't touch them hey suddenly it's still well, works well
1: good job setting it up but bad job doing the security right
0: and that's part of the problem right like you can set up an old you know you can have an old debian system running from a decade ago but that doesn't mean that it's running correctly or that it's still a secure way to go about that
1: yep yep but we'll talk more about this next week uh uh, I found it very interesting, and the stuff that stuff that um, the author went through, uh, it's just very interesting reading, and we'll, we'll 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 take more of it next week.
0: Look forward to more of that on next week's episode of Snap. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to the audience this week?
1: Nope. Go and check all your Shaw stuff. Make sure you get that yes. in order.
0: And we have no some homework, so uh, go look up those words, go watch yes. those videos. There's lots of stuff yes. to check out. Yes. That wraps up this week's episode of TechSnap. This has been episode 308, live-streamed on February 28th, 2017. If you'd like to see more of this excellent show, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. We've got an archive. You can see the last generation of the show, this generation of the show, a ton of other great shows. Go check it out. They have a calendar there. It'll convert what this show airs. Me? I don't know. When does it air? I just, I just sit in the chair. That'll go tell you when you can expect this show next. So stay tuned. Show up live. It's a lot of fun. If you'd like to talk more with me or Dan, you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm at West Payne. You can see it down there in the corner. Wait, this corner. Yes. And Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. We will see you next week on TechSnap.